Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. We will all live forever somewhere. What happens moments after we die? What is heaven really like? What about hell? Am I good enough? What if I'm not? These questions can leave us wondering, but Jesus has given us hope that we can have assurance of our eternity that allows us to live by faith and not by fear. Enjoy the message. One minute after you die. Not many people like to think about their own death, right? I mean, how many of you think about every day? I just, I'm just, oh yes, it's just a pleasant thing, right? Nobody, right? We don't like talking about our own death. We don't like thinking about funerals. People are, are, are don't like attending funerals. Um, in fact, some people are like, I don't even want to have a funeral, which I, I think you, you should, if you're, if, because you're going to die, so you might as well have one. Um, but, but we don't like talking about the afterlife. We like to trivialize it. We like to turn it into something kind of, uh, you know, into a horror movie or, or, or something that we can dress up and say, oh, that's really cute. He looks like Satan. No, don't do that, right? Like, we like to trivialize something that's so real, the afterlife, and what it's all about. Now, I remember my first conversation of the afterlife. It was on my fifth birthday, all right? My fifth birthday, starting young. We were driving to Chuck E. Cheese to celebrate my fifth birthday. And as we were driving to Chuck E. Cheese, we drove past this cemetery. And my friend, his name was Josh, uh, he saw the cemetery and he pointed at it. And he said, my grandpa's buried there. I said, what? My grandpa's buried there. Buried where? In the cemetery. What do you mean he's buried? And oh, on my fifth birthday, I learned the birds and the bees of death, all right? The birds and the bees of death. He said, well, you know, my grandpa died. And then when he died, they buried him six feet in the ground, and now worms are eating him. And I thought, what? The conversation at Chuck E. Cheese was really, really interesting. That's all I got to say. That's back when the, you know, do you remember Chuck E. Cheese back in the day, the little animatronics, you know, like that, that was the day, right? The little animatronics came out, they were playing their songs. I'm like, mom, dad, I don't want worms to eat me, right? Death has always confused me, and as kids, it just kept on piling on. I mentioned a while back ago, my grandpa and grandma, 30 years prior to their death, they took us kids shopping for their headstones. It was so weird. We were there for the summer doing a number of uh, uh, activities. You know, we would, go to, we would go to a field trip. We would then go to McDonald's. We might go to the grocery store. And then one evening, we went to the gravestone shop. I don't even know what you call it, right? But there, we sat in this place. I, thought there, I didn't know what we were doing. And all of a sudden, I'm like, Grandpa, what are you doing? Buy my headstone. What's your headstone? They put it on the piece of land when they bury me when I die. I thought... This is really, really weird, right? And then the same grandparents, they would go, and I think this was a traditional thing, and maybe some of you do this, uh, maybe on Memorial Day or, or maybe on different days of the year, you'll go to the cemetery, they would buy the fake flowers, they, they would put them on the graves, and, and they, would, they would just pay respect to those who departed. Well, I remember one time I was with my grandparents, they're putting on the flowers, I didn't understand what was going on, and then all of a sudden I got a spanking. I was like, why am I getting a spanking? Apparently, I stepped on my dead great uncle's grave, and that was disrespectful, right? Death just completely confused me. It confused me as a kid. I, I didn't really want to think about it. And you want to know something? It's not just kids that are confused about death. We as adults are confused about death. We as adults want to avoid the subject all together. But I believe that as followers of Christ, we can think about the subject. We can prepare about the subject. Uh, we, we should definitely not ignore the subject. You want to know why? Unless Jesus Christ comes back in our lifetime, every single one of us is going to face death. Every single one of us. 
We are all going to die. In fact, we, we, we call dying something a lot, ni- a lot nicer and palatable. We call it aging. Uh, every year that we age, we get closer to death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, Injustice is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. Every single one of us will meet our demise. Now, 92% of people think it's a good idea to discuss end-of-life care or wills or life insurance. And so most people think it's important to plan for these things. You know how many people plan for them? Only 32% of the people actually do it because they don't even want to think about it. They just want to ignore it. It's, it's something that's going to happen later. So people avoid taking death seriously, and instead they make it trivial. And we see that here in Kenosha and Racine and Lake County, right? Uh, people, I don't, this, is, this didn't happen back in Iowa, but y'all go all out here in Kenosha and Racine for, for Halloween, right? Uh, there, there are people that literally go all out for, they make their front yards, graveyards. They have, now, have you seen these? They have like 15 foot tall skeletons. There's one in my neighborhood now. I'm like, whoa, where did he come from, right? <laughs> Giant, right? And so people go all out, but then Christmas, there's nothing. Like, it's, it's weird to me, right? Uh, a holiday about death, right? I guess there's some candy. Death. And then there's Christmas, and it's like crickets, right? I'm not saying you have to go Clark Griswold all over your, your neighborhood and put lights everywhere, but it's just, it's just, it's an observation. That's all I'm making. Nobody likes to talk about their own death. But unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, death is coming for us all, and we're gonna live somewhere forever. Where's it gonna be? These are real places called heaven and hell. These are gonna be our topics the next couple weeks. But today, I want us to just get to a spot, know that we're gonna spend somewhere forever. Death is coming for us, and life after death is forever. Life after death is forever. So to prepare for this, we need to realize that your life on this earth is limited. It's it's not forever. Your life on this earth is not unlimited. Your time after earth, though, however, is forever. Earth, it's not unlimited. After earth, it's forever. And so if you're going to be prepared, that means that you need to prepare right now in the present. Let's take a look at the first thing. If life after death is forever, you need to understand your time on earth is not unlimited. Now, I think we all know that, right? But how often do we live as if we have all the time in the world? We're going to be in 2 Corinthians primarily this morning. If you want to turn there, words will be on the screen if you're brand new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be in. We'll be in some other verses as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now notice verse one. Paul, who's writing the Corinthian church, uh, the Corinthian church was messed up in all sorts of things. They were taking on cultural ideals and they were making them as if they were biblical. And so he had to correct the Corinthian church on a number of occasions. Uh, We know that he wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian church, two of which became scripture. So we notice here in verse one, he says, for we know. For we know. What he's saying is, Guys, I've taught you this over and over and over again. You heard this from our Lord Jesus. That we are not forever. That, that, that you're, you will die. Now, people love to speculate what's going to happen after you die. 
And let me tell you this. There are a number of things that we just simply don't know to great detail what happens the moments after we die. But don't let that make you think that all what happens after death is just speculation. The Bible is very clear what happens to you after you die. And I want you to know that if you're in Christ, you can face death joyfully. Because we see here in verse 1 that if we have an earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house, that means forever, in heaven, not built by human hands. So the question I have for you this morning is, are you ready? Are you joyfully ready for the afterlife? I remember there was an individual that I knew, a man whose health went downhill very, very quickly. Uh, he had done the church thing his whole life. He checked the box, did the church thing, served a little bit. Uh, it, it, was just, it was just one of those things where he just punched the time clock. But he was more grumpy than joyful. Uh, he was disconnected from God other than the activity of God. And listen, here's the deal. The activity of God is good, but the activity of God should not be separated from a relationship with God. You can do the things of God and not know God. Did you know that? Well, this person was grumpy, disconnected from the Lord. And they were given a prognosis that was devastating. You had two weeks to live. You had two weeks to live. And so when I found that out, he went in the hospital. I, I went right to the hospital to go visit this person. And as I entered the room, his eyes got so big like I was the Grim Reaper. He looked at me and he said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. How do, you, how do you respond to that? I didn't know what to say, but just pause and say, God, give me the words. Then I looked at him and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Are you confident that you know the Lord? We're going to pray for healing today, but if God doesn't provide healing, are you ready to meet the Lord? And his response was, I don't want to die. I can't tell you what went on in his heart, assuredly today. But what I do know is that death surprised him. Is that death came up on him to where he thought he had just a little bit more time. The Lord tells us that we need to number our days. This is a universal truth. Time keeps on going and going and going. If the clock quit working, time's still going. It's just the clock quit working, right? Time keeps on going and going and going. It is constant. Now, I want you to think about this. If you live to be 80 years old, you have lived 29,220 days. Now, for most people, 80 years old is above the national average of life expectancy. You think that would grow, but I know in the last couple years, just with the pandemic, they said it's gone down a little bit. So 80, we'll just say 80 years, 29,220 days, which means by the age of 25, you have burned through almost 10,000 of them. That's why the Bible tells us to teach us to number our days. That doesn't mean to say, okay, I better live for myself. I'm not telling you to get into a midlife crisis at the age of 27. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is make every day the Lord's day. James 4.14 says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You're but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We take our lives so importantly as we should because every day is a gift. But I want you to know that sometimes we take our lives so important that we diminish God. And this is where scripture tries to humble us just a bit. We are but a mist. A mist in the expanse of time. So this is a reality check. Every day is a day for the Lord. Every day is a gift. Every breath that you take is a gift to give back to God and say, God, use me to the fullest. Because the reality check, as each second goes by, our body is aging. And at the moment where our time is up, and the Lord knows when our time is up, our bodies die and they will decay. Your physical bodies will die. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 again. For we know that the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. But meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will, be found na- we will not be found naked. Now, Paul is using an illustration of a tent. Paul, his primary job was to be a tent maker. He, he, he made tents. And so he's using the illustration of something that uh, he did day in and day out. Tents. Now, nobody typically buys a tent and says, this is my forever home. <laughs> nobody, right? Uh, that, the tents would last maybe three or four months before they start giving out if you lived them in every day. And so tents are not a forever home. They are very temporary and so Paul is, is using the tent as an illustration to demonstrate our bodies, which house our soul, is very temporary. Our body, temporary, but our soul, which is housed within this temporary tent, is forever. And that is why Jesus warned. That's why he warned not to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. So often we take things that we think are of utmost importance But in the grand scheme of eternity, they are not. When we die, our physical bodies begin to decay and our soul goes into living forever somewhere. Erwin Lutzer in his book, uh, One Minute Before You Die. By the way, this has been a great help. It's actually the inspiration for the title of this message. Erwin Lutzer, One Minute After You Die is a book on the afterlife. Highly recommend it. Uh, Gave it to my uh, my, my mom's uh, husband, when she passed, uh, he read it. It was a great comfort to him. But not only is it a comfort for you if, if you've lost a loved one, it's a preparation for you as you live on. Erwin Lutzer puts it this way. He says, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you'll either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you've never known it before. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchanged. Death is the great equalizer. No matter how much you own, no matter what your last name is, no matter what kind of influence that you had or you didn't have, no matter what, everybody's fate in the end is the same in that we meet our demise. Death is a great equalizer. The question is, if death is a constant, where will you be in all of eternity? Whenever I do a funeral, 
and I've done a number of funerals, no matter if the person's 100 years old, at every funeral, whether it's a child or a 100-year-old, there's something in my heart that says it shouldn't be this way. And indeed, every funeral is a reminder it shouldn't have been that way. God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, to live forever. However, sin kills. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin entered this world and death entered all of us. And that's why we needed a great rescue. That's why we cannot rescue ourselves. That's why we needed the Lord God Almighty to rescue us from ourselves because sin not only kills us physically, it separates us from God and kills us spiritually. And Jesus Christ, he provides each and every one of us who, who receives from him eternal life, spiritual rebirth through Jesus Christ our Lord. So every funeral reminds us it wasn't supposed to be this way. And every funeral reminds us that earth is not our home. That earth is not heaven. And experiencing death is a wake-up call. Of instead of ignoring death, it should be a reminder that we need to get right with God. There is a, there is a great trend where people are giving up on funerals. Especially people that don't know God or they aren't spiritual. And what they do is uh, instead of having a funeral, they go and rent out a section at a local bar and they put up a picture of somebody and maybe some candles and the people get drunk in the memory of the person that departed. Why are people doing that now? Because they do not want to sit through a service remembering somebody and remembering their own mortality. I'm going to tell you, every funeral people come to Christ. And I do believe that funerals are appropriate because every life is a gift and they should be honored, but we should also be faced with our own mortality in those moments. Life after death is forever. Your time on earth is not unlimited. Your physical bodies will die. If our physical bodies are dying and they will die, what lasts forever is your soul. Your soul, however, will last forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. For while we are in this tent... We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, as guaranteeing what is to come. If your body is not forever, it's important to know that your soul lives on forever and will be reunited in your resurrected body. Now, we need to talk about the soul for a second. The soul is often misunderstood. Uh, when you start talking about the soul, it can go to all sorts of different directions and often unbiblical directions. So let's talk about the soul. The soul is the immaterial element of our nature that relates to God. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll say that again. The soul is the immaterial element of our nature that relates to God. Human beings are made of a body and a soul. They are distinct yet inseparable. The soul was created by God at the conception in your mother's womb and will live on forever in eternity. The body and soul is only separated at one's death. Our soul sets us apart from animals. As they allow us to relate to God and worship, reading the word of God and prayer, and doing God's miraculous work. Now, often the Bible will describe the soul as the heart. Uh, the heart, and that's an illustration. It's not necessarily a physical heart. Our physical heart isn't the soul. Uh, but the heart is used as a, as a picture, as the center of your being in Scripture. 
Uh, other people think of the soul as being your mind. Uh, it's, it's where you're, it's in your mind, it's where you reason. Uh, but we cannot mistake in our physical brains for our soul. Our, our soul is an immaterial element. Well, what function then is the brain with the soul? Uh, well, it's true that if your brain is to be damaged, that, that again, that you aren't acting as you would if your brain wasn't uh, damaged. But that doesn't mean it's your soul. Your brain li literally can, it's an instrument when working properly, can pick up what's actually going on in your soul. Uh, it's, it's able to make, uh, it's able to reason and, and make intact uh, what's going on in your soul. And so the brain works together with the soul, but we know they're different. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of times where our spirit is praying, but our mind is unfruitful. He's talking about praying in the spirit, right? There's, there's times when you're praying in the spirit, uh, your, your, your mind is unfruitful, but, but your spirit uh, is being edified. What he's saying is there are times our soul perceives things that our mind cannot make sense of. With that said, unless you're dead, the body and soul are inseparable and they work together, okay? Uh, it, it can be kind of a fruitless task to try to separate our body and soul when we're living, but when we die, our soul separates from the body. Does that make sense? When you place your faith and trust in Christ, your soul is made alive in Christ, it's not that before you place your faith and trust in Christ, or if you're, you're here today and you're, you're trying to figure out where you are in Christ, it's not that you, before Christ you didn't have a soul. You have a soul. But your soul is spiritually dead without Christ. If you want your soul to be made alive in Christ, you must receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. The moment you receive Christ as Savior, you are born again, you're made spiritually anew, your soul comes alive in Christ. Now look at 2 Corinthians 5.4. This is the promise of every believer, is that when you place your faith and trust in Christ, this decaying body will be swallowed up, you're like swallowed up, by life, by life. If you are in Christ, your soul after death will once again be clothed in a glorified body, a body that you were meant to have before the fall, a glorified body that will never get sick, a glorified body that will never get tired. A glorified body that will never experience anxiety or depression. A glorified body that communes with God without distraction. A glorified body that will never end. I can't wait for that, right? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and this is in the end of time, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. When Jesus Christ comes back, all those who died in the past, their bodies will resurrect and be joined again with their soul. And they'll be given a glorified body in heaven. At Christ's second coming, our bodies will be made new. Our bodies in the grave uh, that, that go into the grave or, or some of you are like, what about cremation, Right? Uh, you know, what about cremation? Listen, nothing is too difficult for God. You can, you can dump out uh, the ashes and the wind can take it. I'm gonna tell you this right now. When Jesus Christ comes back, the, uh, the, the particles of the dust that have been spread out wherever they're gonna come together and resurrect into a new glorified body. So whether you're buried or you've, or, or you've been cremated, I want you to know the resurrected body is a guarantee and you'll be given an incorruptible body, perfect glorified Notice in verse five, though, not only are we given a promise of a glorified body, you're given a down payment of that right now. As you wait 
for Christ to come back. As you wait for his glory, Christ does not leave you empty-handed or without his power. The beautiful thing in the New Testament church is this. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you get a down payment of, right here in verse five, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. We have, he's given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You're given the Holy Spirit. Now, when you are given the Holy Spirit, you have a responsibility to live by the Spirit. You have a responsibility to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have a responsibility of not being guided by your own flesh, but being guided by the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, now lives in you in order to live by that. You're given a guarantee, a foretaste of the kingdom to come. I'm gonna tell you that is awesome, isn't it? That you can have the Spirit of God living in you. And yes, indeed, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and now it's your responsibility to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to live in his fullness. The Holy Spirit is our down payment to empower you, to gift you, to fill you, to commune with your souls. We do not have to go through this life in our own strength. If you have Christ, live by the Spirit, by his power. It guarantees to your soul that you are children of God. So here's my question this morning. If the soul is forever, how goes your soul? How's your soul doing? That's not a, is that a question you ask very often? Man, I wonder how my soul's doing today, right? I, I'm going to be honest, there's, there's, there's a couple days I'll go through and I won't think exactly that, that question. I won't think of it that way, but let's, let's ask it. How is your soul going? You look in the mirror, I'm like, man, my hair is just messed up today. You're like, oh man, I'm, I shouldn't have eaten that pizza last night, right? You, know, you, you think through all the different outward, outward expressions or outward manifestations of what's going on in your physical body, but are you asking yourself, how goes my soul? How's my soul doing? Is it growing? Is it healthy? Are we feeding it with the word of God? Are we communing with the Lord? Are we living in the power of his spirit? Are, are we trusting God? How do we feed our soul? By all the above what I just said, but it takes one more element. Surrender. Surrender to God in every area of our life. For many of us, we think we can surrender in the 80%, but it's that last 20%, and it doesn't really matter. It's that last 20% that's killing our soul. Surrender to the Lord in everything. Surrender your thoughts, your words, your passions, your agenda. And the reason being is this. Our souls are so important because it's forever. And nothing else about us is forever and none of our possessions are forever. When we die, we don't even take a red cent with us. It all stays here and rusts and breaks. It goes to yard sales. It goes, every time I see a yard sale, I understand what's happening and I know people are getting deals. We have been to yard sales, but a part of me is sad because it's these things that we fight over in life that break, that rust, end up at St. Vincent de Paul or the, good, or the goodwill. And that's not what matters. Our stuff doesn't matter. We bring nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of this world because life after death is forever. Your time on earth is not unlimited. 
And if your time on earth is not unlimited, what we need to understand then is this, is your time after earth is forever. Your time after earth is forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we live by faith and not by sight, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Notice verse 6. In Christ, we have confidence. We are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In the Lord, you have confidence. Why? Because you've been given a down payment through the Holy Spirit that communes with your soul. We have confidence knowing, uh, and this is an amazing thing again, let's go back to the Holy Spirit, is that he saves us from having to be stuck with our own thoughts. Can, could you imagine that? That if you were just stuck with your own thoughts, your own ways, you were the only remedy for your life, I would be frightened this morning. I know some of us are like, I could do it my way, let's be honest. Even when we puff up and we say that, when no one else is around, we're fearing. We feel the weight of the world. I want you to know that the weight of the world is not for you to carry. The Holy Spirit has come in to dwell you, for you to endure it and to thrive through it. The Spirit of God reminds you, gives you confidence that you are not alone. You're not alone. No matter what season of life that you're in, you're not alone. You're not alone in your schoolwork. You're not alone at your job. You're not alone in, 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 with your family. You're not alone in your marriage. You're not, you're not alone with trying to raise your kids. You're not alone when your prayers are weighing you down so much and you don't see an end to it. You are not alone. And Paul, he brings tension to this. There's a tension as we wait. He says in verse 7, For we live by faith and not by sight. For we are confident, I say, and I prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. He's, he's, Paul notices his tension. He knows that he's living in a life that is fleeting. He, he's gotten to a spot, and uh, we see here in 2 Corinthians, that he longs to be with the Lord. Do you long to be with the Lord? Oh, Paul got to a spot where he longed to be with him, and yet in that tension... He realized that no matter where I find myself, I'm going to live by faith and not by sight. And I'm going to serve all my days in the Lord and please him. Verse 9, and so we make it our goal to please him, whether at home in the body or away from him. Now, I often hear this. I know, I know, I love hearing the messages every week, but, you know, I just, I... I I got way more time. Like, I have all these different things I want to get done, and then I'll get right with God, all right? I mean, maybe later on, like, you know, I'm, I'm starting to do some of this stuff, but, like, come on now. I mean, that's just a lot of pressure. Like, I just, just give me some time. Like, I'll do God later. I've met some of those people in conversations on their deathbed. And I've said, later's here. Some get right on their deathbed, but it's amazing those who don't, because later never comes. 
for many of us, we can buy into the satanic lie that later will come. But often, later never comes. So therefore, Paul's response to that is, do it now. Be obedient to Christ now. Get right with God now. Why? Because there's a big motivation here. Verse 10, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We will all face judgment. We will all die, and then we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. More on that in just a bit. But why is it that we just say, I don't want to think about that, or later, or why is it that we just have an attitude towards the things of eternity? And I'll tell you why. It's because many of us have bought into a false view of eternity. I want to go through these because they're creeping into the church. They've exploded into culture. Here are just a few reasons why we put off eternity. The number, number one false view that is creeping in is universalism. Universalism. A universalist is someone who believes everyone, despite their belief, will be saved by Christ. Or at least the really, really good ones, right? At the heart of this false view is that everything will work out in the end. Now, universalists are divided if there's a literal heaven or hell, you talk to one universalist, like, no, uh, heaven is earth. And when you receive Christ, he saves you from the worst version of yourself. And, and when you follow the teachings of Christ, his moral teachings, uh, then you become the best version of yourself. Okay, that, that, that's, that's, the, that's one view of a universalist. The other universalist They'll say, oh, no, there really is heaven. There's no hell, but there's heaven. And when people die, they see Christ, and everybody says, yay, we're in, right? Now, the, this idea, in some form or another, has is, is crept into progressive Christianity. And I will say this. We're just going to out it. It's creeping in silently to some evangelical churches. Today, people will preach something, but behind the scenes, they say they don't believe it. I want you to know that whatever is preached up here is because we believe it, right? We teach what we believe. We don't teach because this is what you want to hear, right? We're going to teach the word of God. And if we ever said Christ didn't resurrect, if we ever said, oh, no, uh, uh, everybody will go to heaven, you have every right to wring my neck, all right? Like worse than that, right? Like, get out of here. Let's get someone to preach the gospel, right? And yet it's creeping in. You hear the whispers of it. Theologically, sometimes I'll read something like, oh my goodness, that's universalism. You know, the, the reason why universalism, I believe, is catching on in some areas is because it's, if, you, if you just found out, like, oh, everybody's saved, everybody's good, like, that, that sounds appealing, doesn't it? But no matter how appealing something sounds, it's just not biblically true. And to preach that, you would give people a false assurance Universalism is a false gospel. It is true the gospel is for everyone. And everyone and anyone who receives the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. But Jesus told us the majority of the people will reject it. Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. 
2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, when he takes vengeance, that's Jesus, with a flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those, on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal, that's forever, eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Universalism is simply not biblical. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to go there, but he knew the most people in their own uh, initiative would choose that. Jesus said that the road that leads to destruction is wide and that many are on it. So universalism in all its forms must be rejected, always. Many pastors, again, are masquerading with this. The tall tale sign, by the way, if universalism is creeping into a church, they will minimize hell. They will maximize heaven in the sense that everybody can go there or, or oh, most people will go there. And they will minimize the need to share the gospel. Now, some churches don't share the gospel because their priorities are wrong. That doesn't mean they're universal. But the ones that say, no, we don't need to do it, the seeds of universalism at least have seeped in to that church. Another false view of eternity this is an interesting one, is channeling, all right? Uh, it could be uh, psychics, it could be new age movement, uh, the occult, and you're like, really? Yes, this is alive and well. You just have to go downtown. Uh, there'll, there'll be, there's an occult new age festival that happens quite frequently, and a lot of the soccer moms go buy tarot cards, all right? You're like, really? Oh yeah, I know some. Yeah, is that? yeah, it's real and it's happening, and Southeast Wisconsin has been a mecca of the occult for many, many years. Why channeling? Well, people like to get their crystals or aura readings, uh, their tarot cards. And by the way, I've even heard some Christians try to borrow this and merge it in with Christianity. It is incompatible. Why? Listen to this. God warned us. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in a fire. Got that. I don't think anybody's doing that. Right? Good. Uh, well, mate, well, we do sacrifice our kids, don't we? What do you think abortion is? Practice divination. Tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, and inquire of the dead. Everyone does these acts as detestable to the Lord, and the Lord is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. God is speaking to Israel that started taking on these actions, <laughs> and they got punished for it. We're told later on in the New Testament, we see the narrative of acts that we're not to do any of these things. Now, people, they claim to, they have talked to their departed loved one. And again, if any of you here have done this before, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm, we're going to preach truth on this. There's, there's no condemnation because in Christ, there's no condemnation, there's forgiveness. But these things are dangerous. You have people that say they talk to a departed loved one. And I know that when a loved one dies, you would love to talk to them again. I can't tell you how many times I want to talk to my mom. But every time I want to have a fake conversation with my mom, you know what I'm reminded of? I get I can talk to the real and living God who my mom is worshiping right now. That's that's pretty amazing. I can talk to God for real. But we I understand that you want to talk to your departed loved one again. And so people will sometimes go to these psychics, they'll or spiritists, and they'll pay them tons of money. And what ends up happening is they are frauds and they take your money, or something's actually happening and it's demonic activity. Evil spirits are real. We don't talk often about them. Because I want to talk more about the Holy Spirit who's greater than all the evil spirits combined. If you're living in the Spirit of God, if you're living by His truth, you have no fear. 
But evil spirits are real. And they oppose the things of God. Now they can't tell the future, but they can steal information. Previous information. They can impersonate loved ones. Demonic activity gives rise to things that are supposedly haunted. So-called paranormal activity, if it's actually happening, is demonic. And it needs to be avoided and not treated as entertainment. The demonic is a counterfeit to the real power that is in Christ. If a loved one is involved in the new age or the occult or psychic activity, I want you to know that probably what they're looking for is they're looking for a spiritual experience. I've had some people tell me that, oh man, I'm doing this, this is crazy, isn't it? Like, let me show you the real thing. If you know anybody that is taking part in the occult, it is an opportunity to say, stop looking at the counterfeit, let me show you the real in God. Invite him to church. At Kenosha City Church, we reject any and all new age occult uh, activity because if it's really happening, there's people that are frauds, it's not really happening, but if it's really happening, it's demonic. It needs to be avoided. Another way of uh, the people get messed up in the afterlife is reincarnation. Reincarnation. This is the idea that you just keep on getting born over and over and over again. And depending on uh, how you live uh, will be dependent upon how you're born or what you're born into. It's the idea of karma. Comes around, goes around, right? If you live a bad life, you might end up a grasshopper that's smashed in the next life, right? Reincarnation is just simply not true because, again, we see in Scripture, it's appointed once for a person to die and then they face judgment. It's not appointed 32 times for a person to die and then they're smashed as a grasshopper. No, it's you're appointed once to die and then you face judgment. Uh, Erwin Lutzer talks about in his book an actress named Shirley MacLaine. I think she's had these psychic commercials about a decade ago. And she claimed through a context of spirit, uh, spiritists and having personal visions that she had been reincarnated. She was once the princess of Atlantis. I'm glad she found it, all right? An Inca in Peru in a previous life. And in one life, she was raised by elephants. I think she watches too much Disney, all right? So what are we to make of these experiences when people say these things or they have visions? I'll quote Erwin Lutzer in his book. He says this. Her experiences and similar ones do not prove reincarnation, but rather confirm that people of all ages can become victims of demonic influences. That's why scripture tells us that when we have visions or when, we have, when people are hearing from the Lord, we need to test every single one of those spirits and it needs to line up with scripture or it needs to be thrown out. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We must reject reincarnation because God has, again, been so clear, you die once and then you face him. Now, this last one may hit a little closer to home, false views of eternity. Some of you may have been brought up with this doctrine. Some of you might even still hold on to this doctrine, but again, I'm going to be honest with you up here, all right? I'm going to be honest with you with the word of God. Uh, if, it's, if, if an idea, uh, a cultural understanding, a, a, a doctrine flies in the face of Scripture, we need to address it head on. And so this last one you may have brought up is called purgatory. Never talked about this on a Sunday morning. I was like, checked my notes. I'm like, well, this is the first. Purgatory. How many of you have heard of purgatory before, right? Purgatory, right? Purgatory is defined as a temporary place where those who have died who weren't good enough to make it to heaven, are purified 
from their sin through punishment and then eventually enter in to heaven. Now, if you were to flip through the pages of scripture right now, you would not find any treatment on purgatory. None. Now, people have tried to take scriptures, usually in the Old Testament, and twist them a bit to say, oh, I think this is purgatory. But there is no clear teaching. There is no teaching anywhere about purgatory in the Bible. So where did purgatory come from? Well, it didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from the early church, first century, second century, third century, right? It came during the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. And it was brought into tradition. And what we see is that many people began to believe this faulty view of salvation. Uh, and, it, and it really became popularized because nobody felt like they were good enough to go to heaven. Well, they were correct. But because the gospel wasn't being preached, people thought it was by works. And so if you weren't good enough, well, okay, here's this purgatory to help you to get in heaven. Purgatory is not in scripture. It's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. In fact, we see the opposite. When Jesus was on the cross, there was a thief next to him who was hurling insults. But when the thief got closer to death, he realized, oh, crud, I'm going to meet eternity. And he turned to Jesus and he said, remember me. And Jesus said to him, truly today, you'll be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross had no good works other than placing his faith and trust in Jesus. And guess what? That's all it takes. Faith and trust in Jesus makes you clean. Faith and trust in Jesus makes you born again and sets your spirit alive and sets your future secure. The biblical view is when we pass on, we face a clear and decisive and irrevocable spot and forever. And that's why today we need to figure it out. That's why today we need to figure out where is our soul because we will face judgment. When we die, we will all face God. And there'll be two different types of judgments, by the way. For the non-believers, those are those who did not place their faith and trust in Christ in this lifetime, they will face the great white throne. And believers will face what's called the Bema Seat. Now, the great white throne, and I mentioned this in our Revelation series. You can go back and listen to our Revelation series and hear uh, a full treatment on this. But the great white throne for nonbelievers is found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Apostle John wrote down a vision he received from God of the end of the world. And as recorded in the last book of the Bible, uh, we see this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no one was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne is for people who never trusted Jesus before they died. And they were judged. Now, some of you may have just heard this and said, wait a minute. They were judged for what they did. I didn't think... Uh, placing your faith and trust in Jesus was about works. I thought it was all about grace. You're correct. It is about grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's for grace that you're saved, right? By faith, right? It's, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's clear in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but when you, when you place your faith in Christ, the Bible says that his righteousness is placed upon you. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, he sees himself on you. He doesn't see you any longer. He sees what he did on the cross as payment for your sins. Now, if you never place your faith and trust in Jesus, he does not see himself on you. He sees you. He sees your works. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. But guess what? Even your greatest good doesn't get you into heaven. 
Yes, indeed. If you don't have Christ, you will be judged by your works. The bad news is not one work can get you to heaven. You need something greater than your own work. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to get in by good works, your name will not be found in the book of life. And your soul will be consciously separated from God in a place called hell. More on that in a few weeks. The judgment seat of Christ is where the followers of Christ will face God. For Christ followers, the judgment seat of Christ is a place where the quality of our lives will be judged. Not our salvation, but the quality of our lives. Uh, we're told in scripture uh, that, the, that our works will either uh, remain or they'll be burned. And which means that what is left, we will receive a reward. Uh, my grandma would always talk about like, how I'm going to do this because I'm going to get a heavenly reward in heaven. I was like, what is the heavenly reward, grandma? She couldn't answer me and scripture is really vague on it. Uh, but if it's in heaven and the streets are gold, I'm going to tell you, the reward is going to be pretty sweet. All right. So we, as followers of Christ, we will be rewarded in heaven. Scripture's not uh, very clear on what it is because I believe they don't want us to live for the reward. They want us to live for Christ and be rewarded as accordingly. The judgment seat in the original, again, is called the Bema seat. Uh, the Bema seat is a word that was originally used in the Olympics as the winner would step forward to receive the reward on the Bema step. Uh, this will be the place you will see your whole life at the Bema seat, the judgment seat. You'll see your whole life lived out before you in the totality of your eyes and your life will be judged. I don't want to be at the Bema seat, even though I'll be saved. I, I don't want to be at the Bema seat with my head laid low singing, yeah, God, I'm sorry about that. Start running the race right now. Because heaven and hell are real. Heaven and hell are real places, and they are forever places. We're going to spend the next two weeks talking about that, because the concept of heaven and hell are being attacked culturally. They're being attacked hardcore in the church, specifically hell. Uh, even, there's a section of evangelicals are trying to throw hell out. I want you to know right now that, that is dangerous, all right? So heaven and hell, we're going to talk about those places are real. In the next couple weeks, we're going to be going there with that. But they are real. They await for us. Our souls will end up somewhere. The question is, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Life after death is forever. We're compelled to live this life fully for Christ. That now is the time. So that's why in this present, number three, this present, your forever is prepared in the present. Your forever is prepared in the present. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who lived shall no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. When we understand that Christ came to rescue each and every one of us from hell. He came to rescue us from a world that has fallen. He came to rescue you from your life being the totality of what you live through, your anxieties, your depression, uh, your, 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 your hardships in life. He came to rescue from all of that. Not that necessarily this life will get easier, but that you have an amazing eternity waiting for you and that you can begin living in this eternity now and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, we see here, verse 14, Christ Love compels us. Are you compelled? Are you compelled by the love of God this morning? Are you compelled like, get me out of here, let me in, let me in. Let me into church, I'm gonna serve. Let me in, I'm gonna worship. I, let me, I need to get to the front, I need to pray. Oh, I can't wait to meet Jesus. I can't wait to meet with God's people and praise Jesus. I can't wait to hear what God's word is gonna say. I can't wait to serve him this week. Are we compelled? answer is no. 
need to check our spiritual pulse. Because when you realize what Christ has done for you, when you realize the predicament that you're in without the Lord God Almighty, and that you've been rescued, you cannot but be compelled. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your priorities. It's going to change who you are. And you're going to push all those chips into the center and say, I'm in. I'm all in, Lord. He compels us now to no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. Let me end with this story. I told us a few years back, but I want to bring it up again because Erwin Lutzer, who wrote One Minute After You Die, was my preaching professor. Uh, he was a pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, and he has a radio show. And he did something in one of our classes I will never forget. It's burned in my mind. It reminds me we are compelled. We were in class, we were presenting our sermons, and he was very particular on the different ways that we outlined our sermons. And, and, uh, and so whenever you went to his class, he knew this was a radio preacher. This was a guy that was like, uh, I mean, I thought he was 80 then. I think, I don't know how old he is now. He's, he's around, right? And, and so I knew that he was a prolific author. And so when I'm giving him my seminary sermons, I just shook every time I go, oh, here we go. What's he going to say about it? Well, on one particular day, we got to class and he said, class, y'all have your car keys, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. Stand up, follow me. So we got in our cars and we literally followed him. We followed him into the middle of Deerfield, Illinois, in a little cemetery that had been surrounded by all the businesses that, that were built up around it. We followed him into this cemetery. I'm like, what is going on? Why are we in this cemetery? He said, gather around, everybody. We gathered around this headstone that said William. I didn't know if it was his brother, his dad, his great-grandpa. Why were we around a headstone named William? And then he took his giant Bible. He opened it up. He looked at the headstone. And he said, William, I command you in the name of the Lord. Your body is made new. Resurrect. Jesus Christ has died for you. Uh, Jesus Christ has risen for you. Resurrect now and receive the gospel. And we thought, oh boy, this brilliant professor has lost it, all right? He is the nutty professor personified. I'm like, uh, we're like looking at each other like, what's going on? And he's like, Lucifer just kind of like looks at us and is like, hmm, I'll try it again. William, I command you in the name of the Lord, receive the gospel. Receive that this tent that is fading, that you can, re re you can release it and receive a tent of everlasting. That is, through Jesus Christ your Lord, you may be made whole and you may be made clean and you may be saved from your sins. William, will you receive? We're like, okay, he's definitely lost it. And he goes a third time. William, he goes a fourth time. William. And after we were just about ready to call the, the president of the institution, he looks at us with a little smile, said, 
you guys probably thought I'm losing my mind, don't you? But I'm trying to demonstrate to you something. We often wait till it's too late. Passion, conviction, and the gospel is not meant to be preached to the dead. It's meant to be proclaimed to the living so that when they're dead, they may be made alive in Jesus Christ. Be about the things of Jesus now. And we're like, whoa. The gospel is to be given to those who are living so we can be made alive because eternity is forever. Death is a great equalizer. We will all face it unless Christ comes. And if Christ comes or death comes, we'll still face judgment. Make sure your soul is right with God. So, here's your take home. What would you change in your life right now if you knew Christ was going to come back in a week? What would you change in your life right now if you knew that Christ was going to come back in your week? What priorities? On a scale of 1 to 10, where's your urgency with the gospel right now? That is sharing it with the living. Number three, what priorities need to be adjusted today to reflect the importance of eternity? And number four, are you ready to meet Jesus? So Father, I pray right now that every single one of us in this room can answer a resounding, yes, I am ready to meet Jesus, whether he comes today or I go to him. And in between that moment of now and when I meet him face to face in heaven, I want to give my entire life to him now. So God, I pray that you'd bring surrender over this place today that we would surrender our own strength and that we would yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would be people that are, that are living for you in every area of our life. As we continue to pray, I want you to just ask the Lord, invite the Holy Spirit. Say, Spirit, would you just come? I surrender. He's gonna bring different things to your mind. Things that you know maybe you haven't surrendered in your life. As you're doing that, as you continue to pray, I want to talk to anybody in this room right now. If you're uncertain, you're ready to stand before Jesus. Like, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or hell. I want you to know right now, you can have full confidence that you're going to heaven. How? It's by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, God created you to have a relationship with him, but your sin, that is the wrong that you've done in your life, has separated you from Almighty God. And there's not one work you can do to get to him. If you try to get to God through works, it ain't going to cut it at the judgment seat. You need Jesus. So how do you receive Jesus? It's like this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, he stood in your place. He died on the cross. He died a bloody death on the cross. But what, the most significant thing that happened when he died on the cross is he saw you. He saw your sins, your wrong, past, present, and future. And he took it on himself and he experienced the judgment of God on himself, the wrath of God in your place. Jesus died on the cross. 
But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice who's able to stand in your place, death couldn't keep him, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And your response is this. If you want to know you're right with God, you need to receive what Jesus has done for you already. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to step into my life. Lord Jesus, I place my faith and trust in you alone, that you died on the cross to save me from my sins, that you rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, save me. Just tell him that right now. Place your full faith and trust in him right now. In fact, if that is you, with no one looking around, on the count of three, I'm going to ask anybody who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus this morning, just simply raise up their hand, all right? You're just acknowledging what Jesus did. Some of you are raising them already. All right, that's awesome. One, two, three, raise those hands up. If today you're like, yes, I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus. I see you over there as well. Awesome. Just raise a hand up high. Awesome. You're just indicating that you are getting, oh, I see you over there. Thank you. Anybody else? You're just indicating today that I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I'm asking him to step into my life. So Lord Jesus, thank you. We love you. Have your way in us. And reprioritize our hearts to make much of you in every area of our life. And Lord, when we try to rely on our own self, when we get complaining or bitter or angry or whatever it is, God, Lord, I, I pray we would die to that and be alive to the joy that's in you. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.